You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 405 and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. Ben Greenberg is a second career developer who previously spent a decade in the fields of adult education, community organizing, and nonprofit management. He works as a lead developer relations engineer at New Relic by day and is building Hire the Pivot, a reverse job board for career changers at night. He writes regularly on the intersection of community development and tech. Originally from Southern California and a long-term resident of New York City, Ben now resides near Tel Aviv. Welcome to the Ruby on Rails podcast, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. It is great to be here. Well, after seeing your RubyConf talk, I knew that I needed to have you on here. So let's kick it off with your developer origin story. What is my developer origin story? I feel like we're in a Marvel superheroes episode here. So my developer origin story begins several years ago where I was in the midst of a career, which I really enjoyed, and I have nothing but good things to say about it as a community organizer and as a rabbi. But I was looking for a change. I was at that point where I was thinking to myself, I really don't want to spend my entire professional life doing the same thing. I want to try something else, exercise a different part of my brain. And so I went and I asked my family permission to stop working and to learn something new. And thankfully, my partner said, yeah, of course, go ahead. To this day, I'm so grateful to her for giving me that permission to take that break and to explore something new. And so I went to a coding boot camp and had a fantastic time there, both learning some of the fundamentals and building my first community of people that became my support, even to this day, and then launched a career into software. I started as a developer at a financial services company out on Long Island in New York. And I commuted to that job to a cubicle every day from the Bronx to Long Island. And anyone who's ever lived in New York or who currently lives in New York can only imagine the length of that commute every single day. And then I quickly discovered developer relations and I found my home professionally. And it's been such a joy and a pleasure to work at a different companies and different spaces as a developer advocate. That is fabulous. So before we dig into developer relations, how did you choose the boot camp that you were going to? And is that what welcomed you to the world of Ruby? It's a really good question. I chose the boot camp I went to. I was very deliberate in the boot camp I went to. And the reason for that is because as somebody who was pivoting into a new career a little bit later in life, I don't think I had the luxury to take too many risks. I had a mortgage, I had kids to support and a lot of other responsibilities, which tethered me to this world and its financial obligations more than perhaps people who are earlier on in their professional careers. So I really did a bit of an investigative inquiry to try and discover the boot camp that felt like it had, to me at least, the best results, the best career support, the best community. I was most focused on those outcomes. So I eventually landed at Flatiron School in New York, and thankfully it was wonderful. I had a dedicated career coach when I was nearing completion of the program, and she really helped me pivot. What I would say was most successful with her, honestly, what we did together that was most effective for me was she helped me pivot my CV. And it's something that I've talked about a lot since then, is how to frame the experiences that you've had in your previous career and make them relevant because they are relevant, but to communicate the relevancy of them to hiring managers and to recruiters in this field who may not look at that under at that resume, that CV and understand immediately the relevance of it. 
I love that because, you know, I'm a former boot camp instructor myself and I was teaching remotely. And I had this student that was incredibly gifted at UI. She just had a really great eye for design. And she was a makeup artist. That is relevant. She had a real eye for it. Together, we worked on her CV to make sure that it was very clear that she, in some ways, very much had a design background. That is 100% relevant. And my eyes were open to this from the first day I enrolled in the boot camp when I met people who were previously bartenders, people who worked in construction, people who worked in education, in design, in there were people who were sports athletes and clergy. I wasn't the only person who was a former clergy member. And all of us came to the boot camp and have entered tech in general with those skills supplementing and enhancing the type of work that we bring to the places that we join and the teams that we participate on. So somebody with an eye for design can be highly sought after in this field. Somebody who comes with customer relations or understands and has a deep empathy for the person who is involved in the product or using the product or involved in the community, that's somebody that can offer a great support to the team in addition to their technical skill set. So I think it's not a hard transition for hiring managers and for recruiters to understand that a bit of a paradigm shift when thinking about what people who come later in life, either by age or by experience or both, can offer to this field in addition to Ruby skills or to TypeScript or, you know, what they can do with a React app or the other things that you may find on a traditional job application or job advertisement. I couldn't agree more. And we have a lot of junior listeners listening to this episode. And we also have developers who are contemplating whether or not they're on the right technical track. And so I love the idea that you're a former rabbi doing developer relations. But for the listeners who aren't familiar with it, what is a developer relations engineer? That is a question which we could take multiple podcast episodes to answer, Brittany. What is developer relations? What is a developer relations engineer? There are so many subsets to developer relations. And what I will offer is only one perspective on the industry and what this role does. There are a multiplicity of definitions of developer relations. And that's one of the things I think is most dynamic about the role is that it is a conversation between the company and its needs and the individuals that are filling those needs, filling those roles to define what it is in that company. So in developer relations, broadly speaking, very broadly speaking, could be perceived as the intersection between the developer community and a developer first or a developer centered or developer plus or a developer oriented company. So a company that has product line or has services or tooling that where the developer audience is pivotal to its success needs to develop a long-term relationship, not only short-term strategic endpoint goals to achieve a certain number at the end of a quarter or at the end of a fiscal year, but a long-term relationship of reciprocity and mutuality where the outside developers can have a pipeline into the process with product and engineering at the company to help inform the decisions of the product and to offer feedback. And the company can derive benefit from that ongoing relationship to help iterate on the product, whatever that product line may be. So that becomes a key component of it. And the ways in which it is done is by an ongoing, continuous 
feedback loop of developers through developer community engagement, like conferences and meetups, through working on the developer experience of the product, whether that is building or continuously iterating on SDKs and helper libraries, working on the documentation and tutorials to make sure that the point by which a developer has a problem, which happens all the time, developer has a problem, needs a solution, the path to get to that solution is as efficient as possible, and just continually building relationships with developers in the broader community through those avenues and perhaps many more that we can't even articulate in this time together. That is so interesting. And I think in our day and age, the word influencer has a really negative connotation to it. And so I would argue a developer relations engineer is probably as far away from the influencer as you can get. And it's really the intersection of engineering, marketing and community management. And so you have remained very technical. I think that some people might think when you're in developer relations, you no longer are coding. And that seems to be very much not the case. True. It is definitely not the case. The division of your labor day to day, so to speak, how much of your day you're spending in your code editor versus maybe a markdown editor, if it may be the same thing, but within markdown or within your code or how much of the time you're spending on product demos or at community meetups or speaking at conferences or webinars or streaming, that all in many ways depends on the company's needs and your proclivities and your skill sets. You never walk away from coding. So I spend a good chunk of my time and our team broadly, and New Relic spends a good chunk of our time working on enablement packages, whether they're helper libraries. One of the things I'm most excited about that one of my colleagues is working on now is a new integration with Netlify, with New Relic and Netlify. And that is a substantial piece of code that I think is incredibly exciting that's coming out soon. That's just one example. I mean, building in public as well, right? It's building these things in public as part of the community in the open as open source. So no, you do not escape the code. And I'm actually quite grateful for that. When I discovered developer relations, it was after being in that first role for a little while as a, just a developer and never just, but as a developer at that cubicle on Long Island. And I realized that I missed interacting with people and building community. And that was the thing that I loved the most from my previous career. And I went to a conference and I met a developer advocate and she introduced me to the term, to the field. And I immediately felt to myself, wow, there is a path where I can combine the love of code and the love of that technical way of thinking and problem solving with community building. And I think that is true for every possible combination of the role, every possible iteration on the role, depending on the person and the company, but it will always combine code and community. This episode is brought to you by Hook Relay from our friends at Honey Badger. Do you integrate your apps with third parties like Stripe, GitHub, Slack, or Trello? If you want quality webhooks like Stripes, for example, there's more than just sending a JSON payload to your customer's URL and calling it a day, right? That's where Hook Relay comes in. Hook Relay is a service that makes sending and receiving webhooks reliable, secure, and transparent automatically. Users are amazed at the visibility they've gained in their webhooks. Without Hook Relay, you have no idea how many requests you're processing. With Hook Relay, you can watch your traffic, inspect each request, and much more. It's like x-ray vision. Of course, if your app or your integration partners are being flaky, 
You'll love the peace of mind that comes with knowing that no matter what happens, Hook Relay will make sure that your webhooks are delivered. Skip days of grunt work rolling your own webhook system and get reliable webhooks for your app in minutes, not days. Go to hookrelay.dev to get started and check webhooks off your to-do list. One thing that I've always wondered, and I'm so glad I have you on the show to ask you this, pre-pandemic, I always assumed that anybody in developer relations was constantly on the road, traveling to hackathons, traveling to conferences, traveling to the different offices within the company. Is that true? And have things adjusted during the pandemic? That definitely was the perception. I think that's 100% true. That was 100% the perception. And I am not going to say that travel was not a significant part of the role in 2019, in the very early days of 2020, it certainly was a part of the role, but it was not travel for the sake of travel. It was travel for the sake of engaging face-to-face with developers and communities around the world. Obviously, that has not been the case in the past two years. Travel is slowly starting to come back into the field again, and everyone has to assess their own risk tolerance and assess their regional situation and what they're comfortable with and what the company is comfortable with. But travel is slowly starting to ramp up again. But I think what we're doing now is thinking a lot more carefully than we maybe did in quote unquote the before times about the value of that travel. Is that event, whatever that event may be, is it necessary to have it happen in an in-person context or can it happen in a remote way? I am of the opinion that there is a tremendous value to in-person experiences. I am not a full advocate for fully remote experiences all the time, but I do believe that they need to be mediated and negotiated and that there are times when in-person makes more sense and there are times when the remote makes more sense. I think the all remote experience, Brittany, offers a lot of challenges as well. As somebody who lives in a time zone that is far from America, where a lot of conferences and events were centered in North America, it was very challenging for me to present to conferences at two, three in the morning, my time, because the timing of the conference as a remote conference was timed around Pacific time or Eastern time. And so an in-person conference where you're all gathered in the same geolocation, well, factoring in jet lag, right? But it becomes a bit easier to present. You don't have to present at three in the morning or engage with people in the middle of the night. So that is a factor, the geocentricity of remote events when you're not geolocated in that geocentric time zone for that event. But at the same time, not everything needs to be in person nowadays. Although I have to tell you, I really do miss the in-person engagements. I look back on them fondly, especially from those 2018, 2019, meeting so many developers in so many continents and countries And experiencing that feedback about whether it was our docs for the company I was working for then, or it was our SDKs or the APIs themselves and getting that feedback immediately to my face and engaging with the developer and creating a connection. I really do genuinely miss the intensity of that and that intensity of relationship building. I have not been able to replicate in an online experience. I agree with you. You know, I was going to a lot of conferences pre-pandemic and I was getting a bit burnt out, but it's almost the more remote working I do, the more I crave to get back to that. So it's like finding that healthy balance. So speaking of, let's dive a little bit into a day in the life for you. I'm so curious, Ben, 
As someone who's working in developer relations, I'm sure in some regards you are notifications driven, but you're also balancing the other side of it where you need to focus and code. So how do you balance your day so that you're getting basically both sides of the job done? That is a big question. I think the thing that I enjoy the most about developer relations and the thing that I enjoyed also the most about my previous career, one of the things I enjoyed the most was the continuous context switching. There are folks who do not enjoy context switching, but I happen to enjoy it. And what I mean by that is my day. So whether I start my day at 10 in the morning and go on until 8 or 9 p.m., because I'm working with a global team or I maybe I'm more focused on my region that day. So I might have a more traditional day. But regardless of the time frame, within that a lot of time, I am switching multiple times in a day between working on some code sample or working on a piece of a tutorial or creating some video content or mentoring and having a one-to-one relationship with the people that report to me or jumping into a product meeting or a marketing meeting to offer perspective from a developer persona or jumping into a community team conversation about the next event engagement and then going back to the code editor and then back to another one-to-one and then back to another product meeting. I happen to really enjoy the constant change because I feel like it lets me switch the different modalities of thinking throughout the day. It just works for me. That I think is probably either the biggest asset to the field in developer relations, or it is the biggest detriment in the field of developer relations, depending on the personality of the individual occupying the role. It works really well for me. It doesn't work really well for others, but I end up context switching all the time, every day between not only just different modalities of content between video and audio and written text, but between product meetings and marketing meetings and code editing and writing documentation and planning community events and everything in between. Now, I have to ask because I'm two hours ahead of the majority of my team in the mountain time zone. I'm currently in the eastern time zone. Is your time zone to your advantage so that you do get that focus time? It is to my advantage. It is. So my typical day is I wake up very early. I wasn't inclined to wake up early by nature, but my children have made me an early waker. So I wake up quite early as I've been conditioned to do so. And once people are out of the home, once my kids are at school and my wife is doing her own work, I have this dedicated four to five hours before anyone else on my team currently wakes up. So that's four to five hours where I can get things done and just check off items. And those may be and I use this feature often and maybe checking in on people by scheduling Slack messages to appear in their Slack at their 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. on their time zone. I run through my list that I need to check on this and this and this. That might take a few minutes. And then it's like, what do I need to do? And I can look at my code editor and like, and maybe, you know, I just finished building a sample app with a Phoenix framework and Elixir. And I may look at that code editor. I'm working on that Phoenix app and I have a dedicated Maybe once I'm done with those Slack messages and other random miscellaneous items, I have that three hours where I can just work on that before a single message appears in my email inbox or in Slack or Discord or any other place. And there is something really wonderful about that. But then people wake up and then the context switching begins. So I have two follow up questions to that. First of all, I am definitely an advocate of scheduling Slack messages so that way it comes to the developer when they should be online. 
Now, do you ever have times where you send a scheduled message, the developer replies to you and you have absolutely no idea why they're talking to you? Oh, that happens regularly. (laughs) I think for both of us, if you do this a lot, and I love taking advantage of that feature precisely because of what you just said, which is I really, when possible, want to send messages in a way that models what I think is sustainable work. But that means I'm sending a lot of messages. So sometimes I may be like, what are you referring to? I don't remember the context of this message. Oh, that's right. 10 hours ago, I sent you a message on this topic. Let me switch back into that folder in my head and let's retrieve the contents. And okay, let's begin that conversation. Totally. So my second follow-up question, you just mentioned that you were working on content for Elixir and Phoenix. So let's start diving into getting started as a developer. So in 2022, do you think it's still a wise choice for new developers to start in Ruby? I definitely think it's a wise choice for developers to start in Ruby. This is a question which you probably get asked also regularly. and I get asked all the time, which is what language I start learning programming with if I'm just beginning the journey. And I am always very tempted to say Ruby. And I'm tempted to say Ruby because of its expressiveness, because of the intuitiveness of the syntax, because how closely it hues to spoken English and the way in which it models the way that many of us think. But the caveat to that is that I think learning a specific language and diving into the details of that language is less important than learning the fundamentals of programming when one is beginning their journey into programming. So learning more about what are variables, how do you define values for variables, what is a function, what is a class, what is instantiations of a class, How do these things connect to each other? What is looping? What is recursion? Not necessarily deep dives into any of these things, but understanding the broad landscape of these fundamentals and choosing any language in which the resources are most readily available for you to dive into those areas, I think will provide the new developer with the best starting point. So I happen to think that there are a tremendous amount of resources within Ruby to do those things. But if for whatever reason, a developer finds a resource or a a community that speaks more to them, that has the same content in another language, by all measure, they should use that. The language can always be learned. The syntax can always be learned. But once you grasp those fundamentals, they'll take you and enable you to learn more languages and apply them to other areas. It's something which, you know, we hear resonated a lot within the JavaScript community, particularly within the front-end framework landscape. People always talk about, you can find so many subreddits on this, like, what framework should I learn? And a lot of responses are, let's focus first on learning vanilla, quote-unquote, JavaScript before you start diving into the deep dive into Vue or React or Angular or whatever, because you can learn React. You can understand how those things work. But if you understand JavaScript as a language, It'll help you and you understand the concepts behind it. It'll help you a lot more. So I think there's something true about that with any language. If you understand the concepts behind a language, behind programming, you can then apply that to Ruby, to Elixir, to JavaScript, to Python, to whatever language you need to learn within this situation. I love that so much. So you're still seeing a lot of demand for Ruby content at New Relic. Yes, not only at New Relic, I should say, but I happen as part of the work I'm doing on the side And in previous roles where I was helping recruit developers with hiring managers, there is a tremendous need. It really is a need 
for Ruby developers in our industry, there is more of a need than there are people to fill the roles, particularly when you start climbing up the skill level ladder. So it seems to be there's at least a, this was the case a year ago. I probably still true now. There seems to be uh, quite a lot of Ruby developers who are at the beginning stages of their careers professionally and skill level. But as soon as you become more of a career developer, mid-career developer, have a couple of years under your belt, even maybe a year under your belt, the numbers of people that are competing for those roles and the roles are enormous. The amount of roles starts shrinking and that becomes even more true as you get to senior level roles and staff level roles and principal level roles. And companies are fiercely battling it out over people in the Ruby ecosystem. And I've seen and I participated in those battles firsthand. <laughs> if anyone was at RubyConf in person, there was a hybrid conference, but in person in Denver, the companies that were competing for the people who were there, almost every single company that was at RubyConf in this past RubyConf is there for the purpose of recruitment. Companies sponsor conferences for a couple of different reasons, several different reasons, but primarily it's either to share word about their product or their APIs or their tool or to recruit or a combination of both recruiting developers, engineers at RubyConf this past year, the experience was it was recruitment and people were telling me they felt like they were being the most eligible bachelor kind of experience. <laughs> and, and it's so true. So the Ruby community professionally is on fire. It is really on fire, which is Contrary to what you might read if you start reading popular content, but the experience is very much that. Wow. So the action item that I'm currently jotting down then is for RailsConf in May. I really need to shine up my battle gear and I need to make sure that my team does too. So thank you for the warning. This episode is also brought to you by Scout APM. Scout is an industry leader in application performance monitoring. This low overhead tool is designed to help Ruby developers find and fix performance issues. Scout's intuitive UI and tracing logic ties bottlenecks to specific lines of code and allows you to quickly pinpoint and resolve issues like N plus one queries, slow database queries, memory bloat, and more. Scout's unlimited seats and applications allow teams to collaborate without additional costs and makes it easy for any member of your team to become a performance pro. See for yourself why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend with a free 14-day trial, no credit card needed. As a special offer for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash Ruby on Rails. That was the perfect segue because I do want to touch upon Hire the Pivot. So... How is this platform going to help educate recruiters and hiring managers on embracing career changers? Yes. Yeah, so I Hire the Pivot is an effort of mine born out of my love for people who switch careers because I feel that career changers are brave human beings. They're courageous human beings and they deserve support from those who have done it before and from the broader industries that they're trying to enter. And I wish I could support career changers in every industry possible, but I don't have that kind of knowledge. I don't have that exposure, but within software, within tech, I have a limited ability to contact. I have a network of recruiters that I know from my roles and the work I've done. And I really feel like it's mission driven to help educate those recruiters to see career changing developers as superheroes. 
as people who are bringing superpowers and we calling them pivot skills into their work that make them incredible assets for the companies that they join. So the work of Hire the Pivot, which is on my spare time, is a multi-pronged effort. On one hand, I am trying to create a place for developers who are entering the field, who have entered the field, regardless of their experience level currently, but a place where they can advertise and promote themselves, qua themselves as career changers. They don't need to shy away from it. They don't need to hide it. They can actually shout from the rooftop the skills that they gained in their previous career. And then also the second prong of that is bringing in those companies and the teams that work in those companies that are involved in recruiting engineers, bringing those teams and those companies into Hire the Pivot precisely at these people to not look at them as secondary options, to not look at them as it's getting desperate, maybe we'll expand our search, but to include by default, and maybe that's a bit audacious, but that's my goal, to include by default career changers as part of the initial search criteria when they are recruiting for roles. So I think the pipeline can be broadened and I want Hire the Pivot, whether it is Hire the Pivot they're going to or not, I am less interested in that, although obviously I would love if they came to Hire the Pivot, but I want them to broaden their pipeline to include career changers. And so I am constantly having educational conversations with recruiters, sharing with them and, you know, for lack of a better term, evangelizing to them the power of career changers. And honestly, I'm having wonderful results. Some of them are disappointing. I would not be honest if I didn't say so. But some of them I'm helping open eyes and I feel encharged and enlivened by that. I'm silently clapping over here because on a team right now, currently of 15 engineers at Texas, 13 of us are career changers. So I love that so, so much. And I am excited to link that up in the show notes. Listeners, please send this to the people who are recruiting at your company. It's so important that we start talking more about this. So before we wrap up, let's talk about everyone's favorite topic as a developer, and that is testing. So Ben, were you enthusiastic about testing when you first started learning? So I will say the answer is absolutely not. The boot camp I went to Flatiron School and its iteration at that point of its curriculum did not emphasize learning testing. And I think this conversation is important because whatever expertise I have in Ruby now, how I gained it was through testing. So my first role in developer relations after my time at that financial company on Long Island was with the Docs platform team as a developer advocate, as the Ruby advocate at the company, but also as the engineer, the Ruby engineer for the platform. And the platform was and still is a Ruby on Rails site. And it didn't have a lot of testing when I came on board to the company. So my manager at the time, who were still good friends, he's one of the best managers I've ever had. He said to me, you know, the first few months you're here, your onboarding is going to be, you're going to build tests retroactively. And that's how you will learn the platform is by building tests. And the test suite happened to be RSpec, a pretty standard testing suite for a Ruby application, for a Rails application. And in those first few months, I built maybe a hundred, maybe more tests and all kinds of tests, integration tests. I test the UI. I tested every component. I tested the models, the controllers, the views. I tested the API integrations. I tested everything. And learning the syntax of testing, but also learning 
the framework, the mental models of testing really helped me dive deeply into Ruby in a way that it's hard to explain, honestly. And testing gave me expertise and depth to the point where I started initially by hating it. It felt very foreign and I didn't understand the syntax of testing. I didn't understand the need to test. But then later on, maybe a year and a half later into the role, we had to create a a massive new integration for this platform. The integration was, and I'm a bit proud of it because I built most of it, and it was a new pipeline for translation automation so that any docs that were submitted to the platform would go through a pipeline to be translated into Chinese and Japanese and then come back. So this involved a couple different APIs, involved a whole new host of service files and new integrations with the controllers and a whole reworking, essentially, of the platform. And to do that with all the tests that we built made that work so much easier, so much faster. It was absolutely brilliant to do that. And then the second thing we did was we started modularizing the app and taking out components of it and turning it into their own microservices, essentially. So we slowly transitioned from one big monolith to different small Ruby microservices. And each one of them, because they were so well-tested, it was almost like we could just lift the code, put it into its own gem and publish it and just include that gem. And it wasn't as easy as this, but it was almost as easy as that, which is fundamentally amazing, which is many reasons why I love what I'm doing now because I think the concept of monitoring your code and application performance monitoring that New Relic does and that full kind of life cycle of your application from writing the code to deploying the code and pushing changes of code in production, that monitoring of that and the performance monitoring of that is not always the most interesting thing from the developer's perspective. Doesn't always make immediate sense why I should be doing that. But in some ways, I see observability and having that lens and eye into it. You know, one of the things I did when I joined New Relic was I integrated our extension called CodeStream, which lets you see production errors and production things happening, like whether lag time is happening, response time, throughput, all those sort of things happening right in your VS Code. I use VS Code a lot. There's an extension for it. it. Let's me see it in my VS Code as I'm working on something. And if there's a bug that's happening in the application, I can actually see the line of code that's causing that lag immediately and address it. And I think there's something really powerful to that. And it's almost a bit of a spectrum on that testing continuum. So I think testing is really important. And the whole area of having that window and eye into your code is really important. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I firmly believe that when you go to deploy, you should feel good about it. No one should be sucking in their breath as they're releasing a new feature. So it's so important that you have that test coverage. That's so neat that you have that evolution around your attitude. And it'll make you very good friends with your ops team and your infra team. They'll love you as a developer if you really care about these things and you build good tests and you are interested in the performance monitoring. And if you want your code to come to production faster, one great way to do that is to be good friends with the ops teams. Let's just put that out there. Amen. So Ben, what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby and Ruby on Rails communities? I think the future for Ruby is thriving. I think the future for the framework for Ruby on Rails is thriving. I'm also very excited for the broader ecosystem of web frameworks on Ruby. I think things like Konami are absolutely brilliant. 
and I've been following Hanami as a fan for a few years now. I haven't built anything extensive with it, but I have played with it and I love it. So I think the ecosystem of around Ruby is so mature and it's yet it's mature, but it's also not stagnant. And I think sometimes you look at different language ecosystems and you find a real maturity to the ecosystem, but yet it's not moving forward. Whereas with Ruby, it is a vital and mature ecosystem where you can find the gems and support for so many things and they're well-maintained and well-tested and well-used. But at the same time, the language is constantly adapting and changing, not only in ways in the language, but also in the framework in ways that we may love, ways that we may hate personally. I may be not a fan of all the new syntax in Ruby 3, but it's there, but it's constantly changing and adapting to the needs of the and the requests of the developer community that uses it while also still being very mature and an ecosystem that you can build powerful applications. You can build applications that serve millions upon millions of users with Ruby. And every initiative I begin, every domain I buy, they they may not all turn into an actual thing, but every domain I buy is built with Ruby, even if it's not the only language I work with at work, but because it is the language I turn to continuously because of that maturity and the ease by which to get up and running with a new idea from new idea to full V1 release is the fastest pipeline by far is still, and I think for a long time will be uh, Ruby. I love that so much. And I agree with you. Ruby is not Rails. And so there is a lot of opportunity in that space. And so I agree. The framework, the library just needs to keep iterating because that's how we're going to stay alive. Now, Ben, I've enjoyed this conversation so much. How can listeners follow you? I would love to be in touch with anyone who's listened to this and continue the conversation. You can find me on Twitter, where I have random ramblings throughout the day, at Rabbi Greenberg. That's my Twitter handle from my previous career, and I have never changed it. And you can also find me on various other social platforms at Chomos on Rails, H-U-M-M-U-S on Rails, because I love Chomos and I love Rails. So it's a great bringing together of my two loves. Yes, I love that. Okay, well, Ben, it was so great having you, like I said, and I am certainly going to invite you back. Thank you for coming on and explaining developer relations, really advocating and evangelizing career changers. The work that you're doing is so important. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure to be here. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.